0: If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 27 in our time together this morning as we continue our study. And Luke, following Jesus at Luke.edu. Um, <clears throat> I was on the internet last night and um, was looking up the word conduit um, and I have to be careful because I'm, like, I'm not an electrician. And so whenever I get into certain of these areas, i got to be very, very careful because I'll place say something wrong if you're here and you're an expert in those areas. But it did tell me a couple things. Conduits are sometimes used for water, right, to move water from one point to another. Pipes, we might call them. And they're used to move electricity along. They're not the Electricity. But there's that through which the electricity passes. And I thought about this passage we're going to be looking at today. And actually, I gave you this title. I came up with another title driving up this morning. Didn't have a chance to change any of this. I guess what I want to talk to you about today is being kingdom conduits. I mean, we're not the electricity, are we? But God, in his good grace, uses us as the means. I want to kind of look at these three stories that are all connected together and see what a a kingdom conduit kind of looks like as we embrace the power and authority of the king. Luke chapter 9, look at what he says in verse 1. Jesus, as you're aware, has been speaking about the kingdom and doing all kinds of healing and ministry, right? Right? Now what he does in chapter 9, he's going to do this in two phases. We're going to find it in chapter 9 and again chapter 10. He's going to launch his disciples into that ministry for him without him being present. Notice what it says. Luke chapter 9. He called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority. How do you like it when you get authority but you don't have any power? Or power without any authority. But what if you have right and ability? That's a great match. So he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he set them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. They had seen Jesus do this again and again and again. He now launches them out and he gives them both the ability and the right to proclaim the kingdom of God and to authenticate that by a ministry of healing and exorcism. Okay? And he said to them, verse 3, take nothing for your journey. Nothing? Nope. Neither a staff, nor a bag, but women, this would be especially difficult for you nonetheless, (laughs) but I'll just keep reading, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece, and that's gone light. It's almost like a blitzkrieg, isn't it? I mean, as they're trying to get the message out. Now, in all fairness, in Luke 23... Jesus will come back and refer to this again as he talks to the disciples. And in that passage, he says, things are going to change a little bit. You do need to take a bag and a staff. You even need to take a sword with you. Okay, so things get reconfigured as Jesus is going to leave. But at this point, he wants them to go out. And this is what's unchanging, folks. Whatever we do for the king, it needs to be marked by trust, doesn't it? And these guys went out with nothing. And as they went out with nothing, with the ability and the authority of the king, Jesus said, I want you to tell them that the kingdom has come. And as you go, verse 5, verse 4, and whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. So you go into a village and someone says, hey, I like what you're saying. Can you stay with us? Stay there. Live there for that short period of time while you're proclaiming until you move on. Okay? And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, the ministry that that these disciples have, that we have, as we proclaim Christ, tells me that we don't force our message on people, do we? I mean, We don't keep it from anybody, but we don't force it on them either, do we? So Jesus says, you go in, the receptive, you speak, speak, speak. At the point at which people say, get out of my face, leave me alone. That you may grieve over it, you honor that. even wipe off the dust as kind of a symbolic representation. You reject God, this is a very serious thing. So he gives them this, this commission. And then he sends them forth in verse 6. And departing, they began going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, here's what's really fascinating to me. Suppose, oh, Dave, you're in the front, so I get to use you as an illustration. It's a bad, it's a really bad Carmelo I know Carmelo was smart. He makes sure he moves. He did it one time, hasn't been back since, you know. Um, but Dave's there. Suppose Dave is one of the 12 that's launched out here in Luke 9. Dave and I, we'll just put, us, put, put, put ourselves together. So here Dave and I are, we're launched out ministering for the king and we're doing miracles and we're proclaiming the king and people are hearing us The tendency might be that I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking, people are going to start saying, hey, have you seen the Raider Finkbinder show? (laughs) It's a pretty good gig. I mean, Dave, did you see some of the miracles he does? Finkbinder can exercise like you can't imagine as to proclaiming the king. And wouldn't you tend to think that they would focus on us? And here's what's fascinating in the text. Who Who they are really focusing on is the Jesus behind them? And that's always the way it's supposed to be in mission, isn't it? So Herod, the governor of Galilee, hears about this, and he doesn't talk about raider and thinkbeiner. He talks about Jesus. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. This was the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. And so he's looking around saying, Raider Finkbeiner and these other guys are out doing their thing and like there's somebody behind it named Jesus. Who is that? Well, the rumor was by some people, John the Baptist is back, man. And that's got Herod a little bit nervous because he's saying, I'm sure I cut his head off. Right, and others, verse eight, that Elijah had appeared. Elijah was back, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Somebody has come back from those those prophecies from the Old Testament about Elijah figures and some of that stuff. Man, these guys are here. So one of them's here, and so Jesus is just kind of one of them that's come back. Here's the point: Herod's troubled. Because something's happening. And its source is Jesus. Isn't it wonderful when you and I are engaged in ministry in such a way that people around who may even deny and not like what's going on says, something is happening there and it must be the one behind them because it's certainly not Raider and Finkbeiner. Isn't that what we want? And these men are commissioned with ability and authority to proclaim Christ, and it rattles the very governmental system of the day. And they don't know what to do with it. Verse 10 they come back from this blitzkrieg. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that had been done. Can you imagine what some of those testimonies must have been like? Man, you can believe it. I mean, you know, I mean you know, they're just they're, they're going on and on. And Jesus is so wise. And his training process, you know, he's, he's modeled it. He now has them engage in it. And now he wants to debrief with them. And he knows when they come back, the best thing to do is to kind of pull aside for a short period of time and kind of talk about it, catch your breath, relax, that, that kind of a thing. So what he, what he wants to do is he wants to withdraw alone with these 12 to debrief for a period of time. So he withdrew by himself to a city, taking them with him to a city of Bethsaida. And and I'm thinking, if Dave and I are doing this, we're out, we're going along, we get back, we're both tired, we have all kinds of things to do. We've done a lot of stuff with the crowds and multitudes. We just want some downtime with Jesus. That makes makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So they just want to kind of pull aside... And be with Jesus and have this quiet retreat atmosphere. I understand that totally. But Jesus has another agenda. Notice what happens in verse 11. It opens up kind of the second scene. But the multitudes were aware of this. They knew the guys were back and they were with Jesus. And he was off to this place called Bethsaida. That area, that general area. It's not right in the city, but right outside. But the multitudes were were this, and they followed him, and and, and, and here's what's so cool to me. They followed him, and welcoming them, he began to speak to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. I have to tell you, if I'm with Jesus, Dave, Doug, and these other guys, And I'm looking around, I'm seeing the multitude come, and I'm thinking, like, cut me a break. Aren't you? I want a breather. And yet, what does Jesus do? Does Jesus roll his eyes and say, I cannot believe this? How'd they find us, man? We were, like, snuck, I don't know. Like, what's that all about? Jesus welcomes them. Maybe maybe we don't, (laughs) okay? But Jesus does. And if I'm one of the disciples, I'm rolling my eyes. I, you know, I'm thinking, oh, come on, man, I need a break. And Jesus said, no, 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 this is more ministry I'm bringing into your life. You need to embrace it and watch me again as I preach the kingdom and I heal. I'm doing, again, showing you exactly what you were just doing and what you should continue to do, okay? So the disciples live, you know, get through all this. Well, it's about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It's getting late. And these guys aren't dumb. Matter of fact, they're actually pretty caring guys. And so they figure to themselves, look, it's about four. We haven't eaten yet. There's 5,000 men there. Doesn't, we don't, how many women? Well, if there was 5,000 women, two and some kids, there's probably 10,000 plus people there listening to Jesus. And the disciples can add up. And they're saying, like, man, this would be like one big food bill if we have to go out and, and pay for this thing. So Jesus... Let him go, let him go lodge, let him get something to eat. Maybe we can continue this thing tomorrow or something, right? So doesn't that make sense? I mean, these guys are really reasonable guys. And the day began to decline, verse 12. And the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. It's such a great response by these guys, I would think. Look what Jesus does. I I, I just, you you read the text, you go, Jesus, he's, he's good. He's really good. Verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Being the realists that they are, they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all of these people. And in Mark's account, they say that will cost about 200 denarii, which is two-thirds of a year's worth of wages for one person. So think about what you earn in a year if you're just an average person. Think about two-thirds of that. Do you want to pay? I mean, Tim, I don't know how many people were at your reception last night. My guess is it wasn't 10,000. Can you imagine having a reception for 10,000 people? Yeah, you'd have to sell your home. You'd have to do a whole host of things, wouldn't you? And the disciples know, um, I, I was trying to figure this out without being ridiculous, but I figured out if they would have tried to, to feed the, the 10,000 plus people, it would have been all of the money they would have used to feed the 12 of them plus Jesus and a couple women around for an entire year. And so now all of a sudden saying, we have to then, Jesus, you want us to feed them? we got to take the money that we need for us for the entire year, and we got to go in and we got to spend all that, two-thirds of, uh, of wages for one person for a year, on them. And they're, they're just trying to reel and try to figure the whole thing out. Jesus has a totally different agenda. But that's what they're doing. They're realists. There was about 5,000, verse 14 tells us. And he says to his disciples, Have them recline to eat in groups of about 50. Now, how are you feeling? Let's see. We got two fish, and the fish is probably no bigger than this. I mean, you're not looking at. We have two fish and five loaves. And Jesus is telling us to get them to sit in groups of 50. How are you feeling about that time? I mean, I'm thinking, like, this is going to be a fiasco. All right, you 50, get sit down there, 50. I, mean, I don't know, just do it. I don't know, what, I have no idea what he's talking. Maybe we're going to eat sand, who knows, whatever. Just get, you know what I mean? I mean, but the, the cool thing about this passage is, I, when I get to heaven, I've often thought this, I so want to meet with these guys and say, you've got to tell me what you were thinking when, G, when, you're, when you're walking here with Jesus. Because at every point I'm thinking, they're saying, hey, we could go and buy a 200 denarii. And Jesus, you guys, have him sit down right now. Did he, did he, like, not hear us? Does he know what we have? Okay, whatever. Andrew, tell him, I don't know, whatever. Just do it, okay? Have them recline to eat in groups of about 50, verse 15. And they did so, and they had them recline. So you have to take your hats off to them on that one. They just They did it. I don't know what they were thinking. I know what I was be thinking. They did it. And he took those five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke them. And kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitudes. I don't know what that looked like exactly. You know, maybe he's got the two. He's got the fish and and, and, and the bread here and he starts breaking and putting it in, handing it to the guys. and I mean, I'm thinking like, all right, we, this may fill up maybe three baskets, right? Each one of us has a basket. And he just keeps doing it. And somehow somebody's, well, that, that fish really stretched. And they give it to the first group, right? It is, I mean, this is a wild fish story. And they go back, and the guy goes, and he goes back for more, he goes back for more. And they go through this entire process, and look what the text says. Verse 17, so they set it before the multitude, verse 16, and they all ate and were what? Satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, how many? 12 baskets. I mean, what would that be like? You keep going back, and whatever, and then all of a sudden you're thinking like, holy mackerel. And by the time you get mackerel again because of the fish. Okay. Yeah. You're good, Dave. You're very good, Dave. <laughs> and and they just they go back, and then when they're all done, not only is everybody satisfied, but there's food left over. And they bring it back. Now, in Second Kings four, Elisha does a pretty good whopping miracle. Hundred people need to be fed. People are saying, what are we going to do here? And when it's all said and done, a hundred people are fed. And there's something left over. But Jesus way trumps that. 10,000 plus people, when Jesus gets done, they're all fed and they're all satisfied. And you're sitting there as a disciple thinking to yourself, do you mean Jesus can take Dave Raider? And Doug Finner and you and when you say to yourself there is no way for this to occur to provide for this great crowd for me to minister to my children in such a way that they rise up and they walk with Jesus Christ for me to be used by God in vacation Bible school this summer or whatever it is whatever it is there is no way and God says give me the fish give me The bread, I know, Lord, but it's only going to feed about eight of us. And Jesus said, You are a conduit, a kingdom conduit, through which I will provide for people in a way that you can never take credit for yourself. Isn't that what God's into? I told you in the prayer. Friday night, we closed up our seminary. It was our final graduation. Forty-two men launched out into ministry. And it was like bittersweet. I was both smiling and crying all at the same time. And I can tell you this. I can't tell you how many times God has taken simple, common people, have just come to God and say, God, use me however you want for mission and to provide for others. And God has done it again and again and again and again. Folks, this is not a story merely for them. It is a story for us. You are privileged be conduits of the king and you know we knew so much more than these guys they they were going out proclaiming a king and as we're going to find out in the next section they didn't fully know what that all meant we do and we're greatly privileged look at verse 18 and what's kind of interesting and and i'd wrestled with this i'll just tell you i don't normally do this but i'll I'll mention it to you if you read mark and you read matthew and you read john's gospel you will find out there's a whole bunch of events that go on between verse 17 and verse 18 a whole bunch i mean jesus travels here and over there and up there i mean it's all over the place luke purposely omits all those events Because he wants to connect verse 17 with something that's going to happen 20-some miles northeast in Caesarea Philippi. Because he's saying, don't read verses 1 to 17 without reading verses 18 to 27. So I'm going to skip that stuff so this all gets smooshed together and you realize what's entailed here. So look what he says. Because finally, Luke says, they get their time alone. (laughs) Right? They came together for this debriefing and there's people everywhere. And Luke says, okay, they did get their time alone. And when Jesus debriefed with them, what does he say? He's going to tell us here in verse 18. And it came about that while Jesus was praying alone and the disciples were with him. Jesus questioned them. Kind of a follow-up on what people were saying out there on their mission." Um, what do the multitudes say, or I'm sorry, who do the multitudes say that I am? Hey, guys, we haven't had a chance to kind of debrief this. Remember when you were out there on the mission? Well, who were people saying that I was? Well, they could listen. They answered and said, well, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. But others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. It's exactly what we found out that Herod was thinking, right? Same thing, same thing. And he said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" And Peter answered and said, <clears throat> "The Messiah of God, the Christ of God." But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Does that set you back on your heels a little bit?. First of all, we've been out telling everybody about the king and doing miracles. Now when we finally pull aside with you and you say, so what were they saying about me? And we tell you what they were saying and you say, but "Yeah, but what do you think? You are the Messiah. Shh. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> it, like, Does that seem weird? I'm thinking like, come on, Jesus. I mean, Jesus, shouldn't you be saying, you guys got it, go. Keep it up. That's what, that, that's what I'm expecting. But folks, the next section is very important. This is the first prediction in the Gospels of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Look at what he says, and then, then I'll try to explain it to you. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. You know what I think he's telling them? He's not saying, don't tell anybody about Jesus again. You know what he's going to do from this point on in Luke's gospel? It will be emphasized again and again and again and again and again in a whole variety of ways. He says this, you can't tell people about the Messiah without an event that's coming shortly. And that event is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot understand Messiah merely about a reigning king. You can't. It has to be how he comes to be a reigning king. And so, yes, Peter, you're right. I am the Messiah. But I am a Messiah in a way that you're not fully understanding. And to be perfectly honest with you, it will take the disciples through the resurrection till the light really comes on. But it's not because Jesus hasn't been talking about it. From this point on, Luke is going to tell us this again and again. Chapter 9 on, how many times, wherever they are, Luke will say again and again, and Jesus set his mind to go to Jerusalem. And they're somewhere way north, and Jesus set his mind to go to Jerusalem. And they're down in Galilee, and Jesus said, I mean, you get it all the time. Why? Because you cannot understand Messiah apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that overlay is placed on this. So it's not just you're conduits of the king, you're conduits of a king who will die and resurrect from the grave. See, that's the new overlay. I think I told you this before. That is why in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus talks about John the Baptist to the crowds, He says, of all those that were ever born of women, nobody is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because John could point to Jesus more clearly than anybody that ever came before. But then he goes on to say this. But he that is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. You know why Dave Rader is greater than John the Baptist? Because Dave, you, me, we, I'm, I, and I, sorry, sorry, English major, sorry, okay. we can point to Jesus more clearly than John the Baptist. Because we understand the overlay of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And so he, he wants them to know, guys. You've got to think about a Messiah from this point on as one who's going to be rejected and die and resurrect. That's how you've got to think about this. And something else he's going to talk to us about as conduits. If our blessed Lord was willing to suffer, we, as we're conduits of the king, have to be willing to do the same. Which is why he says this. In verse 23. And he was saying to them all. If anyone wishes to come after me. You guys want to be conduits for the king? You want to be on my team doing my thing? Okay, okay, here it is. If anyone wishes to come after me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. And follow me. Do you know in the ancient world. When you carried a cross, it meant you were going to die. And when you walked by the crowds, nobody said, Hey, there's Doug Finkbiner. Hey, Doug. Do you think? Nobody wanted to have anything to do with me. You carried a cross because it meant shame and rejection as you went to your death. And Jesus said, you're proclaiming a king. That's true. But he's not a king in the way you're thinking about it. He's a king who will suffer and die and then resurrect. And you, as his followers, must be willing to face the same kind of rejection that Jesus faced. So if you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to be willing to take on that shame for Jesus' name's sake. Every day. And follow me. And then he gives us some motivations. Look at verse 24. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Do you remember when you were kids? I don't know, maybe you didn't say this. When we were kids, we used to often say, I'd come across and find a pen knife outside. And I'd say, finders keepers, losers weepers. Did you ever say that? Oh, I loved it it when I found it. Do you know Jesus reverses that in this text? He says, losers, keepers, finders, weepers. He turns everything on its head. He says, look, 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 look. Because you're saying to yourself, bummer. Deny myself, take up a cross and follow Jesus. You're thinking like, bummer. That sounds like a really good deal. (laughs) Right? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let Let me tell you something. It's the divine paradox. When you lose your life, You find it. Losers keepers. And when you choose to keep your life and have all of life revolve around you instead of giving it over to him, finders, weepers. They will lose at the end of the day. It's a divine paradox. If there is no glory, if there is no heaven, if there is no afterlife, yeah, then it would be masochism at its best. But if there is, it changes everything. What is a man profited, verse 25, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Do you ever daydream about being successful? I have to tell you, I do Sometimes. There have been times when I've watched a great athlete and I said, what if that could be me? What if I could walk into a soccer arena? And everybody would go like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's about impossible, isn't right? it? <laughs> or I watch, see something with Bill Gates, and I think, what would I do with $60 billion? Oh, I'd give a lot of it away, of course. Right, 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 right. What if all your daydreams came true? What if you could be Bill Gates? What if you could be a, a phenomenal athlete, musician, whatever you, whatever, president of the United States. I don't know what you want to be. What if you got it all and you didn't have Christ. What will it profit of man, if all of your daydreaming comes true, but you lose your soul? It means nothing. 60 years is merely a glitch in eternity. And Jesus says, give it all for me. You know what's fascinating to me? Passages like this are given both to the lost and to the saved in the Gospels. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, it's not about you cranking it out for Christ, because you can't. It's about you realizing that, that, and it's not really even so much you inviting Jesus into your life, it's that he invites you into his. And you can actually be a forgiven follower of Christ with all of your problems and troubles and he'll slowly change you and he invites you and says come into my life I will forgive you I will be your Lord and Savior your sins will be forgiven and I will begin to change your life not an easy life but a good life and it's also proclaimed to believers because we so easily forget And Jesus says Losers, keepers, finders, weepers. For whoever is ashamed of me, verse 26, and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you see the full picture here that he gives us? Guys, a Messiah... It's not a Messiah that you're thinking of, which is just this glorious king. But he is a glorious king. But he's a glorious king through the cross. He's resurrected. He's ascended. And one day he will come back in all of his glory. And what will you say? How will you live? Or what will he say about you? But I tell you, verse 27, truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is so gracious. He's just told these guys some really hard stuff. I'm going to die, but I'm going to resurrect. All they could hear was die. And I call you to a life of dying as my conduit, my kingdom conduit, a life of dying. For a king who is coming back one day in all of his glory. Because those that lose their life will find it. And because I'm so gracious. I'm going to give you a little glimpse of that glory. Some of you in just a couple days. In what we call the transfiguration. If you know Jesus Christ. You're a kingdom conduit. You say, well, I'm not not a very good conduit. (laughs) It's not because of the electricity. And I would remind you again, by his grace, through his strength, Christ says, I have the ability and I give you the authority. I asked you to Embrace my power, first of all, within your life, so that you're willing to live this life of sacrifice. And then, what I want to do is work my power through you, strength through weakness, so that you can reach out in mission and assistance to people around who desperately need me. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that scary? Isn't that hard? Isn't that glorious? It's all the above. And we will find, as these fellows found in the Gospels, that we don't always do so well with it. But it's not because we can't by His grace. If you know Him, Get out all the gunk. They had to clean out one of our, we have a water filtering system. And I had to bring a guy in because our shower head, was like, wasn't coming out real well. And I figured there's probably, there's probably an issue. I, I'm really insightful. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I called this guy in and he went and he said, oh man, your system you, where we clean out your water is really gunked up and we have to clean. And, and yeah, you know, they put a whole thing in. And man, man, the water's just flowing great now. It's wonderful stuff. Well, not wrong with the water. That pipe was all gunked up. Are you gunked up today? You're a kingdom conduit. Let it flow. You'll never regret it at the end of the day. And if you don't know him, you can become a child of the king. You'll bow your knee to Jesus Christ. He will save you. He will reorient you. He will invite you into his life and he will move you in a direction that for all glory, you will say, praise God. Father.